You're listening to a message from Pastor Kenny Garrett recorded at a live service at the General Baptist Church God's House of Prayer located in Fairborn, Ohio. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning, amen? amen. This morning we'll do things a little out of order. And we'll more of a discussion than anything. Um, but let's pray before we get started. Dear Heavenly Fathers, we come in to your divine and holy presence this morning, Lord. We thank you for this day that you've given us, the chance you've given us to assemble. I pray, Lord, now that you bless the uh, sermon you've given me to preach, Lord, anoint it, um, anoint ears to hear, hearts to understand, draw us each closer to one another as you draw us closer to yourself, and we'll never fail to give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Throughout the English language, uh, there are sayings that we, or I know that I, accept just as um, normal patterns of speech. Um, things like, let there be light, my brother's keeper, fighting the good fight, a labor of love, a wolf in sheep's clothing, these things are very normal to us, very normal part of our speech, and each one of them comes from uh, the King James Bible. I don't know if you're really aware of that. Uh, in 1863, on November 19th, Abraham Lincoln talked about a period of time at Gettysburg, and he opens up the Gettysburg Address with four score and seven years ago. A score is found in the King James Bible. Uh, no other place will you find uh, the measurement of a score. And what Lincoln was trying to do on that day was to show that just about the, the verse comes out of Psalms 90, I believe, um, where it talks about human life being three score and ten, and if you labor, it's four score. And what Lincoln was trying to show and, and use biblical language to show is that at that time, this country was just a little bit longer than the average person's lifespan in terms of age. In 1940, in November, when Churchill visited uh, the city of Coventry after it was annihilated uh, by the Germans, he quoted the Old Testament when he said, they've sown the wind, they shall reap the whirlwind. That too is found in the King James Bible. So as we stand here this morning, I think we're all in somewhat of an agreement on the importance of the Bible to us as a group. As God's people, it's what holds us and binds us together. I don't know if you've thought about that. Now, uh, if Diane was here, she might argue that it's music, which lends itself to that, and I agree with that up to a point. It might be traditions, and it might be food. All those things lend itself to our unity, but the reality is that what binds us and holds us together is our love of sound doctrine. And it's that love of sound doctrine that keeps us focused on Christ and keeps us focused on the Holy Spirit. 
We agree on sound doctrine. We find it vitally important. So, my argument this morning is the work here on Vine Street, long after we're gone, what is it that we hope continues here in this building? I hope they sing old hymns here forever until the Lord comes long after we're gone, but I don't know if they will or not. I hope they still keep feeding the community and reaching out to people, but I don't know if they will or not. The one thing that I, I would insist on and that I do hope beyond all hope is that sound doctrine lives here until the Lord comes, right? That the Bible has a place in this building until the Lord returns. In the book of Ephesians, uh, it admonishes us that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. And in Colossians, it urges us to be rooted up to be rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So we see and we know that sound doctrine is built on the Word of God. In 2 Timothy it says, And, thou, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, through faith which is in Christ Jesus, all Scripture." is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We know that sound doctrine in the Word of God magnifies the holiness of God. The seraphim hovering about the throne of God cried out saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of of his glory. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Sound doctrine declares our sinfulness and our wanting as humans. The Bible says in Romans, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And in the book of Jeremiah, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In the book of Genesis, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And we can see that those words talking about. Uh, right before the flood, uh, have not changed much as we look into our televisions and turn on our devices. As we gather together and we strive for sound doctrine, uh, I urge each one of us to put away the thought of believing. Now, what I mean by that is most times when you get around a group of Christians, folks will start talking about what they believe and I've taken some grief over the years for saying what people believe doesn't really matter. It's what the Word of God says. And you and I as humans don't get to pick and choose what it is we believe. And uh, just because we believe it doesn't make it so. And I don't, I don't say it that way uh, to be confrontational, but it is 
highly important. Now, some things are, are worth discussing and debating, and some things are not. We also, as Christians, need to know the time and the place uh, to bring such matters to light. One um, example that's easiest to find is all the time when you, uh, anytime you deal with the death of a loved one, uh, some folks will have an idea uh, that they, when you pass from this life to the next, uh, that you're somewhere in there, turn into an angel. Now, uh, that doesn't line up with what the Word of God talks about. It's, I don't know where it came from or or who first uttered those words, but in that time and place, at a funeral or with a grieving loved one, that's not really the time nor the place to have that discussion, right? Uh, There's nothing faith-altering about it. It's just nowhere in the Bible does it say that it's true. Now, I don't want you to think that we're taking away anything from heaven. If you get into the Word of God, heaven is the best uh, and is yet to come for all of us, right? There's nothing, I don't want to sell short the life, the next life, right? Uh, but it, it doesn't include humans uh, turning in to angels upon their death. But that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Now, there are other things that are worth taking a stand on immediately. Uh, the holiness of God, the divinity of Christ, the um, blood on Calvary being sufficient to cover all of our sins. Uh, sound doctrine teaches a literal hell and a literal heaven, that both of those places are very real. It's a place where we will dwell for eternity. Um, The Bible says in the book of John, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. It is a place that uh, Christ has prepared for you and I. Uh, that we might dwell with him eternally. Uh, Heaven is, as we know, all about God and the praise of God that we'll see lost loved ones or loved ones that have gone on before. Uh, We will know and be known as we were here. Uh, It is a place of untold real estate and untold beauty. Uh, It is like nothing that you and I can really imagine. But the Bible also talks about a literal hell. In the book of Matthew, it says, Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That those are our choices. And that's what sound doctrine brings us to. Just because we believe that hell's not real or we believe that everybody goes to heaven or what we choose to think or how we would do things, uh, it does not change the Word of God. The Word of God is uh, finished and it is done. The good news we also find in the Bible It's that the sound doctrine proclaims that salvation is by grace. In the book of Ephesians, it says, For by grace 
You have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That all you and I have to do is believe. And it is the gift of God, the work of God. He calls us into it. And all you and I have to do is accept that gift, to believe and to move forward through faith. Now, I'm talking about all of this this morning so that we kind of understand where we are together. And I think we're pretty much all together on our doctrine, on our faith, um, things that are important to us. Uh, We still argue. I, I don't know if anybody else really jumps in on the conversation, but there's always a, a spirited discussion on whether the rapture will happen before the tribulation, during the tribulation, or after the tribulation. But the reality is, as much as we debate and talk about that, uh, it's going to happen when it happens, right? And, and we're going to be on the, the side that God wants us to be on when it does happen. So, you know, if you talk, and, and there's no, the reason that we, we debate that and discuss that is there is no clear answer in the scriptures as to when that will take place. So it's always a point of contention, but it's never a point of ill feelings or ill will uh, between any of us. And I hope that makes sense to you this morning, uh, because I want to get into a little bit dicier of a topic from here. In front of me, you'll see what is called a lectern or a pulpit Bible on the table. Now, in medieval churches, if you saw my Facebook post this this past weekend, medieval churches, especially in England, are built with what we call a pulpit. Uh, You actually have to climb into in most cases. Uh, It's elevated. And the preacher or pastor or priest or bishop, whatever the case may be, takes the steps up into the pulpit and he's kind of lifted up so that the congregation can see uh, in these old medieval churches. Uh, Beyond the pulpit, they would also have a lectern. And the lectern was generally in England made of brass and had a, a large eagle on it. So I posted a picture on Facebook of what those look like and The picture doesn't do it quite justice uh, because there's nothing in the picture really to compare it to, but that whole apparatus should have been about six, maybe six and a half feet tall, uh, made of solid brass and would have been, I imagine, as big around as this is. And it would set kind of, uh, if the pulpit was in the corner, the lectern would be kind of in the opposite side of the church and a someone that was considered a layman or just a member of the congregation to do the readings from uh, the Bible would then read from the Bible that lived on the lectern. And that's what you see in front of us. It's a large uh, Bible. It would stay on that lectern and the church would use it. It was very much the church's Bible. Uh, When these medieval churches were, were constructed and used, uh, printing was just starting to come about, and individual copies of the Bible as we know it 
uh, would not have been widely available. So they would have had one text that, that was central to the church and central to the congregation. Now, we have brought that idea uh, into our church and into our faith, and you see it represented in front of you. Uh, but up until today, it has been uh, largely decorative and uh, somewhat, what's the word I'm looking for? Because decorative doesn't quite sum it all up. Uh, nobody uses it, but it, it's, it's been symbolic is the word I should use. Symbolic that the church does own a Bible and it's there, but we never quite read from it. And each preacher or whomever is preaching uh, is given license to use their own Bible. Uh, but after today, I showed this to Brother Mark. We have... Let me pull this out. I have a new lectern Bible now. Me and Mark was really the only ones that was excited about this. But it is... Cambridge Bible. Um, it's a little different than the one that's down before us. And what I mean by that is, is how it's constructed. Uh, this Bible is made in the old way. Uh, Smithsown bindings, uh, goatskin leather overboard. Uh, the pages are extremely thick. Uh, this will... Um, take the place of that one in the front, and we're going to start using it. Amen? Uh, it is King James Bible, so rest assured uh, that the Scripture is still the same. Uh, this is printed in England. Uh, it's got big print. It should be good for our purposes. Um, but I very much wanted the church to have its own Bible that's used. Going back to the old days, uh, before everything was so prevalent, before you were able to turn a Bible on, before um, those sorts of things happened. So I worked with uh, a lady that's very dear to me, and she was able to donate this to us. So we're thankful for that. And you can take a look at it. Um, my question would be to the church, how do we want to display it? Any thoughts? Well, it, it, it's not. I want us to read from it every time we assemble. That it becomes... Um, Permanent, And the, the idea is that it's here long after we're gone, if the Lord tarries. That this, this is what's connected uh, to the building and to the group. So I want it to be here, but it's also awful big. It weighs uh, 13 or 14 pounds. So it is a, a monster of a Bible. My thought 
was that we would keep it where we keep the other one and just bring it into the pulpit on Sunday morning as we start church. Does that work for everybody? That, or would it be okay to leave it sitting there? Um... Not over time. If if it sets up here, uh, it'll start to to droop. The pages will start to droop because it it's so heavy, um, and this is not long enough. Oh, okay. And nobody has one of those big brass lecterns that I know of on Facebook. <laughs> I checked to see if anybody had one. But that, that brings us to the ultimate, the underlying idea of what this is. Uh, we are easily described as an old-fashioned congregation. Uh, we are King James believers. Now, we've talked about in the past um, different scriptures and different translations, um, the reality is, anytime you get into different translations and comparing them, talking about right and talking about what's wrong, you will end up in a place, if you, if you handle it from an academic standpoint, it is so boring, I, I can't describe to you how boring that story is, uh, and also hard to follow. So... It would be much like if I stood up here and explained to you how the Bibles were translated and came to be, me telling you about a vacation I took with 12 people that lasted three weeks that you didn't know, and giving you every detail of everything everybody did along the way. And, and eventually you'd just get lost in the names, and you get lost in the, in the timeline, and it doesn't make sense. It's extremely boring. But uh, so I'll I'll completely um, paraphrase that whole argument for you. You can trust me when I say uh, that there are modern translations that are trustworthy. The King James is also very trustworthy, and it's much like uh, your grandmother's skillet, cast iron skillet. Uh, that's the way you grew up eating cornbread. Uh, that's how you make your cornbread and how your children will make their cornbread, and that's okay. Uh, there are other ways to make cornbread, however. Uh, they're just not for you, and that's much how uh, the King James is. But um, So there's no sense in, I, I don't want us to go down the road of talking about changing or anything of that nature. It's written into our bylaws uh, that the sermons that are preached from here are preached from a King James Bible. Uh, what this one, you'll find, this is a Cambridge Bible, so it will be the English version of the King James, um, which you'll probably never notice, but there will be a couple slight differences, possibly, from the King James that you have. Um, what are they, Mark? Yeah. Now I'm talking about there's some in the New Testament where it's not 
No, it's not quite that old English. Um, there, and I, I got them wrote down at home. You'll you'll never notice the difference, but that is what it is. It is an English uh, Bible. In the uh, in North America, these are called King James versions. In England, they're called Authorized versions. Um, so it is interesting to read about, but like I said, you get too deep into it, uh, and basically. What it comes down to, the reason that there are some vast differences between the King James and between modern versions is the amount of information that we have now as opposed to the amount of information that we had 400 years ago. Uh, And how that works is when this was translated, uh, there was only a handful of copies of the Bible that were in uh, Greek and Hebrew. Now, 400 years later, they found something like 4,000, is it, Mark? So with the advent or with the inclusion of all these new manuscripts that they have, and these some of these are older than the ones they had 400 years ago, uh, that's why you see such a text difference. But the, the reality is that God is still on the throne in both Bibles, right? Christ still died for our sins in, in modern translations and the King James. Um, so I don't want us to fall into the idea that the King James is the only way for folks if they choose uh, to bake their cornbread in an aluminum pan. That's okay with us. We won't we won't talk too much about that. So any thoughts? Any questions about this? Do we think it's good? You can order one. I can get you the website I got it from. But it is it is almost completely useless except for this purpose because it weighs a ton. Um, I would not want to pack this anywhere. Uh, but you guys can come look at it. What is, the, uh, what is the plan with the readings? Is this going to be a, like say when I come to do my message, I read my, my scripture for my message out of that Bible. It, or is it going to be a daily, this individual has a scripture reading today and tomorrow this one will have a scripture reading or such as... I'm, I'm really for both uh, usage. Anytime the church assembles and reads the scriptures, they read it from this Bible. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and you'll find it, it, it'll be the exact same. Um, the pages are pretty nice. Uh, the print's pretty nice as well. But it just kind of gives us that um, feeling of community, I think, that we come together, that this is the tenet of what we do. Uh, and, yeah, and I like that. If you have questions about other translations, feel free to ask me. Go to Brother Mark. Mark knows way more than I do about it. Um, James Leonard knows more than me and Mark will probably ever know. If you have real, real deep questions about it, um, but there's some that you can trust. And there's also, I'll say this. I think we use the, the term translation loosely in America, and not all things are a translation. So when I say stand for the reading of God's word, 
I can say that with the King James. I think I can say that with the ESV and the NIV as well, uh, because there are more direct translations where they've taken the Word of God and they've translated it basically word for word as closely as possible. When you get into versions like the NLT, uh, I'm going to stop there. Because there's other, there's other Bibles out there that I don't think have a place to be read from the pulpit, and that's the reason why. They're so far removed from being a direct translation that I don't think the pastor can really say stand for the reading of God's Word because what's on the page in the Message Bible is, is not a direct translation of what God had wrote down. So it's not the reading of God's Word. Uh, and even the author of that, Bible said that he never dreamed that it would be read uh, from a pulpit. So because these are par- those other versions are paraphrases and they're not exactly uh, direct translations, so be that as it may. Uh, but I will also dispel one other rumor before we end this morning, and that's the idea that these, when you look at different versions, that they were somehow edited. And I'm not sure exactly how that got started, but when they, when you take the ESV, for example, uh, when the group that came together and, and brought the ESV into existence, when they sat down to do that, they didn't start with a King James Bible and then edit it to become the ESV. They started with the original manuscripts and translated it into modern English. Uh, and there's a big difference in that. If somebody sat down with a King James Bible and edited it, that whatever they produced, I really would have no time for uh, because that's not something that we ought to be doing. Uh, but new translations do have uh, their place. And also, if you have an English printed Bible, uh, most likely in the front of it, you'll have the letter from the translators to the reader. Uh, and I can get you a copy of this if you don't have one and wish to read it. But it talks about um, exactly what their goal was, exactly what their aim was when they sat down and transferred this from Greek and Hebrew into the English of the time. So it's, it's worth a read. It's worth a study. And it's worth knowing where this comes from. Uh, that it's not just uh, 150 years old, but uh, it's much older, much deeper. And you guys can come take a look at this if you wish. It'll be here. Um, like I said, I was pretty excited about it. I showed Mark. Mark was pretty excited about it, but we get excited about Bibles. Um,